You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Acting Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. So this week, let's do a little follow-up from something we were discussing last week where the, uh, I'm going to get it wrong and Fred, you're going to correct me, the infrastructure uh, talking to cars. There is a uh, New York State Senator who's working on a bill. Um, State Senator Brad Holloman um, basically is putting forth a bill that uh, that cars should require to have emergency uh, auto, advanced emergency braking, uh, emergency lane keeping, um, but beyond that, speed limit rec- recognition with alerts. So your speed limit sign right now will tell your car, hey, the speed limit's 55. We're going to keep you within that range. Uh, apparently, this is pretty popular in Europe, uh, and you can disable it, but it's a nice way to control what your car does, especially on some highways where the speed limit will jump from like, it's 40 miles per hour. Now it's 70 miles per hour. It seems very random. Um, but let's get some uh, let's get some insight on on this bill and is this possible? Well, uh, I don't think it'll be popular in Michigan. In Michigan, there are two interstate highways connected by a state highway. The interstate speed limits are 70 miles an hour, and the connector uh, speed limit is about 40 miles an hour. The local townships get a lot of revenue from speeding tickets on that connector. So they, they may not like that, but as far as safety is concerned, it's a wonderful idea. Uh, we had a, actually, there was a summit last week, a summit meeting sponsored by National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, that discussed the use of uh, V2X, connections between automobiles and the infrastructure, in a lot of detail. It was a two-day meeting. And... Um, one of the issues that came up associated with the bill is what happens when a car crosses a state line or crosses a jurisdictional boundary. Um, you know, my position is that a partial solution is really no solution because if you become accustomed to high automation in one state and you happen to cross the line into another state that does not have the same kind of restrictions, <clears throat> all of a sudden you've got a problem associated with you know, latent attention and the ability to for the human to assume control and, you know, all those kinds of issues. So, though what they're talking about at the state level is a great idea, I think it really needs to be done at the federal level. And the federal government is really remiss in not even engaging the automotive community about what those requirements should look like and when they should be implemented. That's right. And, and, you know, the, this bill is, you know, it's very, um, it's, you know, it's, it's a big, a lot of things packed in one bill. So they're, you know, they're requiring, um, automakers to include advanced driver assistance systems and standard equipment and new vehicles. And that's pretty clearly the domain of NHTSA. So I don't know if this, um, legislation would would work because it would be preempted by the the fact that that NHTSA has already um, started rulemakings in the area of automatic emergency braking. There's a chance here because NHTSA hasn't really gotten gotten um, too deeply into intelligent speed assist, and since it's already 
being required in Europe, I believe, starting around 2024, um, which is what this bill is, seems to be keying on. Um, but but we just haven't gotten there in America. There's a lot of resistance to um, speed limiting technology. Intelligent speed assist is, is more of a warning system and it lets drivers know when they need to slow down. There's a lot of things to it. But it's not necessarily something that's going to slow every vehicle down to the speed limit everywhere. Um, it's it's slightly different. It's not quite the full um, speed limiting technology that that someday we we think would would really work to reduce crashes. Um, another thing in the in the bill was you know it's it only applies to vehicles over three thousand pounds, which leaves out a lot of other cars. So you know I would I'd like to um, you know I'd like to talk to. This, Mr. Hoylman about the bill. I think it's got some some promise, but there's some areas where I'm not sure where it's going to pass um, federal muster, even if it passed the state legislature. Should we get him on the line right now? Give him a call. You know, that, that would be interesting for a uh, I'm sure he'd like to talk about it. I, I'd like to talk about it, too, because there's a lot. You know, this is one of those areas where there's a lot going on in urban environments. Um and, and, and they have a lot of ability in urban environments to install a lot of this infrastructure that um, it's much more difficult for rural areas with less money, less um, support and more space to cover can get done. So it's, you know, the, it's I, I always love to have a conversation with someone who's interested in getting that type of technology onto the streets. And he's from Manhattan. So that's a great place to start. I think that'd be a great system to put in place in Manhattan because the the joke is it doesn't matter what form of transportation you take, whether you're going to walk, take the subway or drive, you're going to get to your destination at the exact same time. Um, <laughs> and, and part of that is really is is driving in a car is um, people will speed up, slam on the brakes because they'll hit someone or they'll I've just seen them slam on the brakes randomly or maybe they're in one of those Hondas that just starts braking. Um, but if you could, you know, regulate everybody and especially a dense urban environment and everyone's moving more or less at the same speed, that would help with traffic. So I, I like this idea. Also, my car right now, it will recognize speed limit signs and it'll just put on the dash like, hey, the speed limit's this. And it gets it right probably about, you know, I haven't done a scientific study, about 85% of the time. I think it's pretty good. It misses every single construction zone, speed limit, warning, change sign. Um, but everything else it seems to get and i think that would be pretty cool to be like hey and google maps does the same thing it's like hey this is the speed limit and we know you're going well over it right um i mean it just gives a little warning that would be kind of neat but so in this it, it, is this actually in place right now in europe no it's actually going to the, the intelligent speed assist is going to be mandated starting in 2024 so they're way out ahead of us because I don't, you know, I, I, even in my wildest dreams, I wouldn't imagine that NITS would be mandating it within the next 10 years. Maybe they'll prove me wrong, but it's, it's, you know, we're seeing the, uh, a, 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 the fatality rise while other crashes and injuries are going down attributed to a lot of behaviors like speeding and reckless driving. And, you know, I, I, it's time for something like this. The, the, the problem with intelligent speed assist, I think, is, is it's not going to stop people who want to speed or want to turn off the, the intelligent speed assist. It's, and those folks and the risk takers like they're the ones who are driving this fatality trend. So um, I don't know that that intelligent speed assist on its own is going to be enough to, to, to really make a dent 
here and that we're, we're going to need, you know, if, if there's bad behavior going on there and there's tech that can modify it, the behavior needs to be modified. We don't need to give folks an option of whether they're going to engage in bad behavior or not. I don't know why you hate our freedoms in this country. America. <laughs> anyway, V2X, that's what it's called. The vehicle to infrastructure. Is that right? That's the word I couldn't think of. That's vehicle to everything. Oh, uh, everything. Okay. X is kind of stands for anything you can think of. So that would be infrastructure. It could be other cars. It could be cell phones. Um, Ooh, so yeah, pedestrians, Fitbits. You can monitor people by their phones, um, at least as a backup, if your vehicle is not able to detect them walking and um, that type of thing. I, I see this as the next killer app. I'm driving in my car and I can gauge the heart rate of pedestrians on the sidewalk and I can basically increase their heart rate by driving recklessly. Killer. Well, app. speaking of killer apps, actually, there's one proposal that I've heard that pedestrians should be required to wear transponders so that uh, <laughs> self-driving vehicles can know where they are. So, yeah, that would be a great killer app, uh, literally. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh. Hey, speaking of killer apps, um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this guy, Elon uh, Musk. So, he... Uh, he has this beta software, this full self-driving that you pay. And correct me if I'm wrong, you pay twelve grand a year for beta software, and uh, I think it's going up to fifteen. Oh, maybe it's fifteen thousand dollars a year or now. You can subscribe, I think there's a two hundred dollar a month or so subscription. Okay, well, it, it costs more than a cup of coffee and more than um, Sally Struthers asking you to donate money to starving children. Uh, and this beta software, they it's invite only for their safest drivers. So it's, you know, you're special. You got into some exclusive nightclub and uh, it will turn off access to it if it says you had three incidences of driving poorly, but they won't define what that means or any of that because why would they? Uh, but now they've reset it. So, hey, you've we've decided you've drove poorly, but you know what? Mulligan, you're three bad things. Let's start again start from zero why like what first why are people paying this for beta software why is is nitsa or the department of trans transportation allowing this to happen why is you know consumer protection boards allowing this to happen am i just a curmudgeon yeah well welcome to the club but yeah you are but i appreciate uh, that uh, why have, why the letting it happen? It's it's hard to know. Except except for the lethargy and the proclivity of NHTSA to let things evolve and then come in after the fact and do as little as possible to you know make sure things are safe. You know the the way they work is to basically let the automobile companies do essentially everything they want to do self-certify all of their compliance with uh, motor vehicle safety laws. And then if they can demonstrate after the fact that one of the manufacturers has not complied with the regulations, they will then, after extensive study and a lot of time, uh, potentially take action with a recall. But got a couple of there are no regulations for what these automatic vehicles should do with self-driving vehicles or level two or whatever you want to call uh, Elon Musk's offering. So there's no legal basis for NHTSA to come in and do anything related to that. 
What? Why, Michael? I couldn't hear you there, Michael. What were you trying to say? I was going to say we were going we uh, later in the podcast. We'll cover a couple of those examples. Fred was talking about where NHTSA finds a non-compliance and, and comes back and um, gets the manufacturer for that. But um, you know, that's into our upcoming segment called Recall Roundup. Yeah, I mean, there are no there are no laws or regulations that dictate how a company can introduce this type of technology as long as the vehicle meets federal standards. Um, the only thing that's really stopping people from putting an autonomous vehicle that's really not on the road right now are lawsuits um, because the, the states have some, you know, rather basic uh, regulations around autonomous vehicles, but they don't really get into the operation specifically. They have you have insurance requirements and other things to to prove that you you can you know satisfy any judgments against you if if your vehicle is not safe. But um, you know California is trying to prevent um, Tesla from using the full self driving and autopilot uh, marketing through their Department of Motor Vehicles right now. We're still waiting to see how that turns out. Um, but um, right now there's just, there's not a lot of regulation around um, this area, the marketing of different features, what you call cars. I mean, the FTC has been hesitant to jump into it. And so right now it's another, one of those wild west areas we see in um, the auto industry. I, I think we finally have a name for this podcast. Because right now we just call it the Center for Auto Safety Podcast. I think we just call it No Regulations. Because everything I ask, that's the response from the two of you. There's no regulations. Well, I think that's primarily because a lot of the things that we talk about that are fun to talk about on a podcast are tech-related. I mean, we don't really spend a lot of time talking about the brake hoses or how the pistons work and things like that, which, you know... A lot of this, you know, a lot of the older technology, the mechanical technology is covered by safety standards and, you know, their crashworthiness tests and that sort of thing that that cover that. And that's uh, there's just not any of that structure around um, the new tech. So it's it's all developing in front of our eyes. So new tech like propellants used in airbags. Mm, that's not <laughs> new tech. <laughs> sure. Hey, let's talk about licensing, okay? Okay. Um, you're you, Anthony. You're a human being, right? Mm, and yeah, or at least in most respects. And you once got a driver's license, right? I have but it somewhere on my desk. So I'm gonna I'm gonna expect that the progression you went through is to first get some driver's ed. Um, then you got a learner's permit, which allowed you to do certain things under the careful supervision of uh an adult but in order to get the learner's permit you were you had to pass an examination fill out questions recognize road signs do all that kind of stuff right then right. you got the learner's permit and you had to number one be qualified you know you had to have vision you had to be able to manipulate the controls of the car and then you had to pass an additional examination with additional questions and a human being to qualify whether or not you were able to more or less effectively drive the vehicle. I'm going to guess that all happened because it happens to everybody in the country, right? <clears throat> well, then if you have a commercial driver's license or a heavy truck license or something like that, there's yet another level of examination you have to go through to be qualified to do that extraordinary thing, which is driving a very heavy vehicle. 
Now we have. Oh no, Fred froze on us. Vehicles. Oh. There should be there should be an examination process that takes place before they're allowed to go on the road to make sure that they've got basic capabilities. <clears throat> then there should be an additional examination that takes place once the logic and the vehicle and all the software and all that gizmostics have had some experience on the road and we understand experientially what the cars can do and where the shortcomings are. Then we have proposed at that point you would get a provisional license that allows you to operate in certain areas at certain times with limited supervision. But at the final end or you know at the end of the process, there would be an additional examination that looks at several years of experience, operational experience, uh, what did you what did the car do? What could it not do? And then examination by sophisticated engineers and legislators and law enforcement people and all that to say, yeah, is it really safe objectively and subjectively? Is it safe to let these vehicles loose on the highways? We think there should be a you know a very disciplined process in place that includes expert examination of the car before it gets on the road and then progressively as it goes through various stages of experience. Uh, there's no reason in the world why this can't happen. It happens for human beings. It's required, it's customary. And the whole idea that you're gonna take a bunch of software embedded in a 4,000 pound vehicle and turn it loose on the highway without any examination is really crazy. I, I agree, but I think you made some false assumptions about how I got a driver's license. That I should probably clarify. So the the permit test, my aunt worked in the DMV and yeah, I took it, but I don't even think she looked at it. It was just like, here you go. You're, you got it. You're good enough. Um, when I took the actual driver's exam, the first time I tried to take it, the car's registration was a new car and it expired. So they said no. Um, and then I came back and I remember after completing the exam, the woman who was the test tester um she said okay you barely passed you know what that means and i said yeah get the hell out of the car lady <laughs> you know, well you're you're a new yorker that's a little different well, standards yeah. are a little different there it's true but then uh, when i lived in dc my 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 i had a california license and it expired and in dc i go to you know i'm like i gotta get a driver's license again and you sit down at this time it's no longer pen and paper it's in front of a computer terminal and by question three I had only gotten one right and it told you this. And I'm like, oh my, what is happening here? And then question four comes up and it says, I remember this explicitly, you're hauling a load of 20,000 pounds. A crash is inevitable. What are you gonna do? And it like gave you these different options, like one, slam on the brakes to prevent this, two, drive off the road and something else. And I was like, first of all, it says a crash is inevitable, which means it's gonna happen. I can't get around it. And second of all, I'm pretty sure you gave me the CDL exam. <laughs> like, so the, the people that I was like, hey, it's question four. I can't pass what's going on. They're like, oh, you're not here for the CDL exam? No, I'm not. <laughs> the, the normal driver's test in DC, the questions were like, you come to a stop sign. What do you do? A, stop. B, shoot it. C, complain that you can't read because you went to school in DC. B, I don't know. And like, you know, it, any, any answer was acceptable. It was amazing.
Um, well, it's true. But okay. if you lived in rural parts of the country, including rural Massachusetts, B would have been a perfectly acceptable answer. <laughs> Shoot the sign. I, I get it. Uh, and I also want to point out that the full self-driving software is uh, at current prices 3,000 times as much as I spent for my first car. So, you know, inflation. Right. But your first car probably required leaded gasoline, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it, it took a dollar's worth of gas and one quart of oil every couple of couple of hundred miles, a couple hundred feet. Um, yeah. So what you're saying there, I love this idea about having licenses for this type of software. This seems to be kind of the approach that Waymo is doing in Phoenix, where everything it's it's they can only drive in the certain area. They can't go far, and like it, you can go ahead. They'll pick up people. They're being remotely monitored. But again, they're all being remotely monitored by a private corporation. All their data is being sent to a private corporation. Do, do mm. regulators out there get access to any of this information to make this useful? Michael's shaking his head no, looking on in disgust. No, I mean, it's kind of what we discussed in the, the EDR or our discussion of the advanced EDR a few, a few episodes ago where, you know, that there's just no mechanism for these companies that are collecting this data to shoot it over to the government and there's a lot of privacy concerns there um but when it comes well, to the privacy for who talked about before it's important that they have that information um when it comes to the the inputs and all this autonomous data and everything that's going on with all these companies trying to get into that market I'm not sure that it's all that um, important that NHTSA be bogged down with all that information at this point. But it seems like this is a, a better approach that, I mean, that regulators actually have access to this software. But they well, may need the skills to actually evaluate it. Right. And that's, you know, that in the, in the crash context, it's one thing. But when you're talking about all of the data that a car is collecting, we're getting far outside of the crash context into people's phone records, locations, and a, a lot of other things that, you know, we're not interested in um, NHTSA seeing and that NHTSA is not interested in seeing. But the manufacturer data systems collect them all in one way. And there is no way to translate all of that into one system right now for NHTSA to take the information in. Um, that's part of the the um, EDR discussion. But there's also, you know, there's only so much data you can, you know, you can take in. You have to have someone there analyzing it all. And I just don't think it's feasible for NHTSA to be constantly tracking the data feed from every autonomous vehicle or supposed autonomous vehicle company out there. Um However, I think that, you know, the, as, as it's currently set up, they're receiving reports and information on every crash or incident that happens under their standing general order. And they're able to reach out for more information on incidents that, that they deem important. So um, right now, that's that seems to be working. We'd like a lot more information made available to them, a la video and other things that cars are um, collecting nowadays. But I'd... I'd <laughs> Yes, that's going to be a few years down the line. But to Fred's point, like th I, these vehicles should have to take a driver exam. Like right. they should be able to show that I recognized the stop sign. I didn't stop in the crosswalk. I stepped before it. Right. And right now, I mean, those, those, they could set some minimum standards like that. And and right now, you know, they don't even have your aunt monitoring them. You know, it's there. There's 
there is no inspection whatsoever. Um, it's basically an assurance that this vehicle is going to be safe. Um, and then they can put it on the road and test it. Um, we're, you know, there's still some issues around manufacturers commercially deploying large fleets of these vehicles. Um, and, you know, most of the companies seem to be responsibly narrowing it within specific geographic areas. Um, but, you know, there's always a chance that someone is going to try to beat everyone to the punch by doing it a different way. Um, I think Tesla is one of the ones that's doing that right now. Um, and it, that's when we become concerned, not only about the safety outcomes, but about public perception going down the line or, or, or if we allow bad actors into the space who are creating safety problems, is there going to be a loss of consumer confidence in self-driving tech or autonomous vehicles to the extent that it uh, destroys the industry? We don't know. Let's bring it down to something that's a little less lofty, okay? You own your car and every year you bring it in for a safety inspection, right? You got to get your sticker done and right. they bring it into the garage and they you know, flip some buttons, do some things, give you a stamp of approval and out it comes. How do you do that for a self-driving car? There is no standard for doing that. There is no, there is no model process for doing a safety inspection of a self-driving car. And right now, you know, even something as, as mundane as checking the brakes on a self-driving car is something that is beyond the capability of any state inspection station. You know, and we know what happens when people are lax about safety inspections. There was a limousine crash in Schoharie, New York. Um, what was it, two years ago, Michael, that killed 18 people because inspections had not been done and the braking system was faulty. So, uh, you know, before you turn these things loose on the road, shouldn't we have systems in place that would allow state inspections, uh, state inspection systems, routine processes to verify the safety of these vehicles? And if you're going to verify the safety of the vehicles, you need to inspect not only the mechanical systems and the lighting systems, but you also need to inspect the logical systems that are providing the operational controls for these vehicles. That's completely absent. There's just nothing. It's a huge void. So, you know, it seems to me the height of your responsibility to allow these things on the road, you know, without that minimal inspection requirement that we all have to go through every year with our own vehicles. Yeah, I think we got to make self-driving cars, find the nearest safety inspection facility, find out when it's actually open, find out how to pull into their garage correctly on their own and figure out who they're bribing. Okay, once an auto, you know, a self-driving car can do that, I support it 100%. I, that and parallel parking. What is the, you're from New York. What is, the, what is an appropriate bribe for that inspection sticker? I don't know. It's a, it's a new car. They just looked at it and like, yeah, here you go. Here's a new sticker. And I was like, all yeah, right. All right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, because I think in New York, they're just really like, because it's a brand new car. They're like, we don't care. Um, we're not going to run emissions checks on you. Am I confessing to crimes right now? Should I stop speaking? No, I, I didn't do anything wrong. Too what? late to record it. Yeah. Oh, I mean, well. you're, you're editing this, so just pull out all the bad stuff. Andrew. Oh, I'm not going to edit this. It's a, what kind of time do you think I have in my life? Um, but back to full self-driving, Elon Musk says by the end of the year, full self-driving will be fully operational, um, which is exactly what he said at the end of last year and the year before that and the year before that and the year before It's that, Groundhog Day. Before that. Yeah, it must still be selling if he's 
still repeating it. So hey, he's raising the price of it. I mean, it's yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful world we live in. All right, um, let's try. This is our welcome to our first section called Recall Roundup. Now, if you're a fan of the Center for Auto Safety's Twitter account, and I know you are, Recall Roundup happens every Tuesday, uh, and it covers all sorts of fun recalls in the NHTSA database. And so Michael sent out some some good ones to us, and I'm going to start with my favorite one out of it, which is winter is coming. coming sorry, uh, wipers can't push snow. Uh, uh, Hyundai Palisade, they changed a part in late 2020, and uh, they they can't move snow off of the windshield. So let's give us some more input on that. Well, that's, you know, my question on this one was, you know, they, they, <laughs> they, 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 it looked like they knew there was kind of an issue. Um, so why not just go ahead and, and do this recall a couple of years ago when they changed the part? Um, but otherwise, this is kind of a run-of-the-mill recall um, for Hyundai. And you know what? The, Hyundai and Kia have been putting a lot of recalls out lately, and they have put into place in their North American Safety Office, office a new system that you know they say is catching more things faster. And it looks like it's working from here. We hope so. Um, so it's good that they're getting these things fixed before before the snow comes this winter. All right, and then let's see. There's the uh, uh, this one Michael listed as a cool one, and I I tried to read through it and I couldn't understand it. This is a Ford uh, one. Um, you got to explain this to one to me. It's about ejection mitigation issue, and I was like, that sounds like a very cool car. What's the story? So there's a standard that NHTSA has for ejection mitigation, and um, there's a we back no, up. what is it what does ejection mitigation that's mean? how the car works to prevent occupants from being ejected from the vehicle in a crash um it's it was de it was developed mostly to address a lot of the things we see there's a lot of ejections that occur in rollovers when people are unbelted and um there's also a lot of ejections that occur in side impacts when people are unbelted. ejection is a huge problem and it causes a large percentage of the um, injuries and fatalities that we see every year. And it can happen to belt the occupants too. There are some situations in which you can slide through your belt or your belt may not properly function. Um, and so there are, there's an ejection mitigation center that basically functions to, to in this case, it was a um, displacement for certain targets. So there's the very small millimeter uh, Fred can maybe describe this better, but there's these very small targets that you have to hit um, in the in the displacement section of FMDSS 226, and the airbags that Ford had installed in these vehicles wasn't hitting it. Um, and this is one that NHTSA picked up. They were testing these vehicles as part of their um, compliance program. Their Office of Vehicle Safety Compliance was testing and said, "Hey." they're not meeting the, the target here. And so they contacted Ford. Ford went through an investigation. Um, and at first, it, it, Ford said, you know, we're fine. There's no problem here. And then Ford retested and found, oh, yeah, there was a problem. So um, this is one of those cases, like I mentioned earlier, where NHTSA is actually going back and doing the homework and finding um, non-compliance issues in vehicles that are already out on the market. Um, they did something similar recently with a... Um, 
lighting reflectivity issue on Subarus. Um, so the when you think of a recall, you often think of a defect or, you know, your, your tire is going to blow and you're going to roll over or your ignition switch or, or your airbag is going to blow up. A lot of these things that we've we've seen in the news over the years. But uh, on the other side are some non-compliance recalls where, you know, you, we might not have seen crashes or, or incidents yet, but we know there's an issue because the vehicle's not meeting a federal safety standard. So, um in in Subaru's case, they actually filed what we call uh, an inconsequential non-compliance petition. It's a petition for inconsequentiality, um, which basically <laughs> means Does Orwell come up with these names. <laughs> I, I don't know who came up with it. I, I, it was someone I think back in the '60s when they were writing the Safety Act. But it essentially means that yes, we don't meet the federal motor vehicle safety standard here, but um, that is inconsequential to motor vehicle safety. I, this isn't a safety problem. We're sorry we screwed up and we didn't quite meet the standard, but it's not creating a safety issue. And the, you know, the agency sometimes approves petitions like that. In this case, they did not. Uh, so Subaru had, is having to go back and replace two head, the left and right front headlamp assemblies on all of these vehicles. Um, in both the Ford and the Subaru case, I mean, it looks like fairly expensive recalls and, and it's, you know, it's good. They're going back and, and fixing some of these things. Um, the Ford one is literally a matter of millimeters in displacement. Um, and the Subaru one was lights that only reflected from, uh, in a, it, they were only bad from certain angles, but, um, they were bad enough that NHTSA thought they should, they should replace the headlamp assemblies. Um, so th those are two examples of NHTSA and NHTSA's non-compliance office in action. I like this inconsequential non-compliance. That's like when my wife asks me to empty the cat boxes and I don't. I'm sorry, this is some inconsequential non-compliance. Except that she gets to determine whether or not it was inconsequential. <laughs> You're forgetting uh, the, the decider uh, part here. This is a slippery slope. Yeah, I was going to say, that sounds like a very uh, understanding wife you have. Yeah. There's an example I made up. I'm living in a fantasy. Okay. <laughs> uh, and so there was another one you sent out this morning about, uh, it was a recall related to the radio being tied to someone's backup camera. Yeah, and we keep seeing these recalls where the software for the radio or the touchscreen or the blah, -dee -dee blah, whatever electronic entertainment function in the car is interfering with a, a critical safety feature that's required under the motor vehicle safety standards. Um, and so, you know, I, I, you know, going back to our last podcast, we talked about how the buttons, um, uh, how the touchscreen is taken over for the buttons in the vehicle. And, you know, this is just more evidence that there's a problem here when you, when you've got radio features interfering with a backup camera that's required as a safety feature on the vehicle. But how do you design a system like that where you tie these two systems together at all? And I'm looking to Fred. Well, uh, one way to, to poorly design a system so that would happen is to ask those two functions to share uh, memory. So if one writes into the memory one thing and the other one reads that same memory, uh, it can be very confusing and, and disabling.
So memories are, are you know, actually they're, they're physical devices. They have a certain state. And so if you overwrite one instruction with another due to poor design, um, or if you fill it up and it's called a memory leak, if the data kind of just jumps out the end because you're filling it in from the front end, uh, all kinds of problems can occur. So this is a function of the digital design. I don't know that that's what happened in this case, but that's one example of how such an error can occur. All right, and so it's probably a cost savings thing. And this one, it's uh, it's the radio software that's doing it, and they updated it in production in November of 2020. Um, but for some reason, just said, "Oh, we'll just uh, <laughs> we'll just not do this recall for a couple more years, even though we we, we know these other cars might have some issues." I, I'm, you know, some of these recalls that have come in this month make me wonder just how speedy. Uh, some of these folks are getting in with their recalls because, or it, it's also raised the question that I think we may have talked about last week where a supplier, um, there's a supplier issue where the supplier can't, has changed a part some way, but doesn't notify the automaker that that's taken place. And so the automaker only finds out after doing an investigation that a, you know, a system that's affecting the vehicle safety systems is not functioning properly. So every time we see, you know, a delay like that between a production change and uh, a recall, it's kind of a red flag because you want to, if you have a change in production on something, you know, affects a safety critical system, then you really need to go back and do your due diligence at that point. Is that another uh, inconsequential non-compliance? No. No, it's not different things entirely. Yes, that is that is a defect. All right, um, should we jump into uh, listener mail? Yes. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> hey, listener, I wish you could just see what I'm saying. Is is too. Unless you first want to hear the the promised story about the uh, gentleman from Texas named Anthony, who was a rancher. He was uh, vacationing in Vermont. <laughs> and he struck up a conversation at the local IGA with a, a local farmer called Michael, coincidentally. Uh, Michael was a goat farmer. He had 50 acres. He had 20 goats, you know, and things are going along pretty well. And that's so awesome. he struck up a conversation and Anthony said, uh, you know, that's a that's not a very big farm you got there. I've got I got a spread down in Texas. It takes me all day to just drive from one end to the other in my pickup truck. Michael said, yeah, I had a truck like that once, but I got it fixed. <laughs> Fred Perkins, ladies and gentlemen, he'll be performing at the Funny Bowman in Atlanta, Georgia this weekend. Hey, they get better over time. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so, listener mail. This week we have a, a question from listener uh, Albert Suffren, which to me just sounds like a totally made-up name. Um, and his question is, how much does it cost to replace an EV battery pack? And this is kind of related. Well, it's this isn't exactly answering his question, but related to this, there's the story going around that someone had to pay $28,000 to replace the battery on a hybrid Chevy Volt. Um, I don't think they actually paid that amount, but it's it's it's. Uh, it, it was a uh, invoice, an estimate that uh, someone got for their 2012 Chevy Volt with a V, not to be conf confused with the newer Bolt. So, 
effectively they were looking for a hybrid battery for a 10 year old vehicle and the battery is so rare hard to find that it would have to be um they have to go get it from the i think the original supplier and who essentially has to make it special and so there's you know, it was twenty twenty eight thousand twenty nine thousand dollar estimate for for that part, which you know that's obviously pretty outrageous. Maybe that's maybe that's the case, but it does kind of point to something we've talked about before, which is you know these after you know the, the lifespan of vehicles may be declining. Um, the the Chevy Volt was put out, uh, and it didn't quite reach the heights of success they'd hoped for so they basically stopped producing them and now people are having problems finding parts 10 years later so that's a lot to do with the supply chain and how manufacturers do things but i don't think that um that that that's that off of how we'll be looking at things in the future when you know vehicles after eight, nine years with the electronics and software that we have stuffed into them start going bad. There's going to be, it's either going to be, you know, really expensive fixes or, you know, I'm not sure what the answer is. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot, a lot of suggestions that with all the software and electronics that are coming to cars, that we're going to start losing lifespan on our vehicles. But do we have any idea of what it costs to replace a current EV battery? Like a well, I've read that they're in the range of two thousand to three thousand dollars, but there's a, a couple of issues associated with that. Naturally, uh, one is that unfortunately, I know that the cost to replace a transmission in a Subaru is two thousand dollars. So um, it's a it's a cost comparable to other major maintenance that you might have done on a car as it gets up into the range of a hundred, hundred fifty thousand miles. But it's also important to point out that. This is really a, a function of cars having to have a very long range. Now, if cars are able to be, if electric car batteries were able to be recharged very quickly, there'd be less of a reason to have a huge battery. Uh, there's a lot of research going on right now to try to figure out how batteries can be safely recharged at a much higher rate than they are now. So presumably if you could recharge your battery in five minutes, it wouldn't be a burden to have a much smaller battery on your vehicle. So uh, hopefully in the future, batteries will be smaller, they will charge faster, and so the replacement cost of that battery, which would now be smaller, would also be reduced. But uh, for the moment, I think we're talking two to $3,000. Yeah. Okay, I mean, that seems comparable, like you just said, to a transmission. But what happens in, you know, let's say I have some lithium-ion battery car, and in 15 years, no one's making lithium ion batteries anymore because they have all moved to sulfur something uh, batteries. Um, I, we're going to be stuck in that situation where what Michael was just talking about, where this is old tech. It's like you can't get a part for a computer that's 10 years old. Um, There's no guarantees. Yeah, you're, you're yeah. Uh, taking a certain amount of risk there. Yeah, but that's that's new to the auto industry because like you could always go to a junkyard and find some old engine um or some old parts like it this is this is a pretty new phenomenon huh yeah you're not going to find any junkyard batteries that you want to buy <laughs> no definitely not well thanks for that question albert suffering that was a good one i think yeah i don't even know if we answered it i mean do we know what it costs to 
replace individual cells? I'm not sure. There, there's so many different types and structures of batteries that they put in cars. I'm not sure if it's possible to answer that question with any specificity. Yeah, I don't think you want to get into replacing individual cells. Yeah. That's uh that'd be a big problem. Well, maybe, you know, someone goes out and buys a, an EV and just says, hey, I want a new battery. And we'll just find out what they say. You know, come on, one of you two. Come on, who, any takers? Who's raising their hand? Anyone? 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 Yeah, got nothing. I got nothing. Nope. Nope. Michael's really thinking about it. Or his coffee. Well, I was thinking about an article way. I saw. I believe it's in China where folks are, you know, they're, they're basically... They've got, a, I forget it was, but they've got smaller, basically portable batteries that you can just kind of plug into your vehicle. So instead of going home and charging every night, or if you're on the road, sitting at a charger, you just pull into a service station and they do switch out the batteries and you go another 200 miles. Um, I've read about this too. It's pretty neat. Yeah. And that, that's, that's, you know, that's, that may be one of the answers there. Plug and play cars. All right. And then they'll weigh less than 3,000 pounds, so they won't need to be having these, you know, talking to infrastructure things, and people can just drive like maniacs all day long. No. no I just quickly checked the internet, which is, of course, always accurate, and I'm it says here, how much does a Tesla battery cost? And the answer is a basic battery replacement in Tesla costs between thirteen and $14,000. Oh. So... That's one data point. I can't qualify it to say it's completely accurate, but hey, it's on the internet, so it must be true. It must be true indeed. Um, all right. I think we've wasted another, uh, I don't know how many minutes I stopped paying attention of people's times. Yeah, I'm just going to steal lines from Click and Clack. They're not on the air anymore. Why not? Unless either of you have uh, anything else we'd like to add in? I, I got no more jokes. No, no more jokes. Okay, good. Good, listeners. We're not sharing around the article Fred sent earlier about aliens and being probed. All right. Uh, <laughs> visit autosafety.org. Donate. Sign up for vehicle safety check. Subscribe to this podcast. If you're not already subscribed, go to iTunes. Give us five-star rating. Tell all your friends. We know we have. All right. And please, and if, if you really are interested in the article on uh, aliens probing humans uh you know just send us a request and we'll we'll try to accommodate you that's contact at autosafety.org all right any final words of wisdom michael i don't know that i had any to start with <laughs> all right <laughs> that's his fundraising pitch have a nice day bye-bye bye-bye For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.